afternoon. I'm Charles Lee. And I'm Elise Kovic. And this is the Grok Science Show. Today we have Dr. Richard Pearson. He'll be talking about driven to extinction, the impact of climate change on biodiversity. So you want to stay tuned for all that, plus the Grokatron 5000. It's coming right up here on the Grok Science Show. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Back to the Grok's Science Show. Well, global climate change continues to affect life forms across the Earth. However, the extent of this change still remains uncertain. At the extremes, mass extinctions may be possible, or alternatively, life forms may be quickly adapting to their new environments. How is biodiversity being affected by global climate change? Well, joins today to discuss this issue is Dr. Richard Pearson. Dr. Pearson is a scientist at the American Museum of Natural History, whose research has been funded by NASA and the National Science Foundation. Author of numerous scientific publications on the subject, he has penned the new release, Driven to Extinction, the Impact of Climate Change on Biodiversity, and he joins today to discuss this uh, very fascinating issue. Uh, Dr. Uh, Pearson, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. It's really our pleasure and certainly glad to have you on the program. You know, there's a lot of different opinions out there, mainly uh, through the media, which is talking about the impact of climate change on biodiversity. How do we uh, wade through uh, what's out there to actually come at what is actually happening to the different species on the Earth? True, there's certainly many different um, opinions out there, and certainly what I'm trying to do in the book is really lay down some of the things we do understand and some of the things that we don't understand um, about the issue. But some things that we really do understand extremely well are um, related to how species are actually already responding to climate change. So we know that the climate is changing. That's kind of an unarguable, if you like, um, in, in terms of climate patterns over the last century or so. And we have some really good, strong data showing how species are already responding. So some of them would be exotic cases like work that we've done here at the American Museum of Natural History showing that amphibian and reptile species in, in Madagascar are actually shifting their distribution so that they're moving upslope as the climate is warming in, in that part of the world, which is one of the kind of responses you, you would expect to see from climate change. But other less exotic examples, if you like, will, will be happening in, in everybody's backyard and in the local park. Things like spring coming earlier, so flowers blossoming earlier in the spring and birds laying their eggs earlier. These are all what we tend to refer to as fingerprints of climate change. Another fingerprint would be that distributions are shifting poleward, so northward in the northern hemisphere and southward in, in the southern hemisphere as the climate's changing. And really, we can't pick up one particular study that, that will unequivocally kind of show that it's linked to climate change. But what we can do is look across literally hundreds and hundreds of different studies and show um, that there's a very clear signal. Um, so that's really in the, in the observed record. That's what's already happening and tends to become more controversial and, and quite rightly so is, is then what might happen in the future. Really, that's kind of the issue. Is how do we uh, predict uh, what's going on in the future? Do we look to past events in, in the Earth's history or what, what are the methods for doing so? Well, certainly, yeah. One of the key things in terms of predicting future impacts, yeah, we can, we can look at what's happened in the past and what we tend to see are the kinds of things that have happened in recent decades. For example, the, the poleward distribution shifts and upslope distribution shifts. But what we tend to rely on more are 
computer simulations are, are models of what might happen into the future. And there are various ways that this, this is done, and, and, and they all have pros and cons, if you like. But, but one of the, the, the most commonly used methods would be referred to often as a, a bioclimate envelope model, which is basically to say, well, we know where a particular organism uh, occurs um, in the present day, so we might know the distribution, for example, of a particular tree species or, or a, an amphibian or a reptile, and we therefore characterize what the kind of climate is that that species occupies, and we might refer to that as its kind of bioclimate envelope. And then what we can do is use computer simulations to predict where under various scenarios of what the future climate might be like, where those species are, are likely to redistribute um, through the landscape, or in effect, where in the landscape is likely to become more or less suitable for the species. And of course, we can go from that to estimates of, of um, extinction risk or likelihoods that species will go extinct, because if climates that the species currently occupies in effect shrivel up into the future if they become much smaller, or if they move into areas that are currently, say, agricultural landscapes or urban areas that are not conducive to that species occurring, then we say that those would be species that are, are, are at increased risk of extinction. And you'll see, you know, numbers out there which, which could go anywhere from kind of 20% of, of species on the planet are at risk of extinction due to climate change to uh, way up as 60-70% um, depending on the methods that are used and various assumptions. But some of the predictions are really, um, really quite alarming that there are really a number of factors within those models that aren't taken into account and we really need to try and understand those better before we can have a, a, a clearer picture of what the future holds. I see. It's, it's oftentimes that these uh, more alarming predictions uh, make the news. Is it just because there's more, they're more alarmist than the more conservative predictions? Yeah, well, I, I, I guess so. There's always competing for, you know, media attention and, and, and for uh, it, it's inevitably the case that the more dramatic predictions will get the most attention from the media. But certainly what a lot of us in the field are doing and certainly the, the, the purpose of, of my recent book is to try and communicate a more nuanced message about really what we, what we do understand, which is that climate change is a threat to, to species. But but equally, and, and, and to biodiversity as a whole, but equally there are a lot of things that we don't understand. Um, some of the more dramatic predictions that, that are out there can't necessarily be supported by science. And um, there are, uh, just to give you a couple of examples of things that we, we don't understand so well, one, one of them, perhaps the, the main one in my mind, is simply how communities respond. So I've just given you an example, this idea of computer simulations using what we refer to as bioclimate envelopes, where we model the species, we, we, we try and predict species as, as individual entities, if you like, rather than as part of a community. And what, what we're really seeing in some of the really recent literature is how species may, re, may respond in one way if you just look at them as individuals, but when you put them into the kind of complex networks of interactions with other species, the responses can, can, really, be, can really be very different. Mm. It seems like, uh, again, these sort of models are going to be exceedingly complicated just because of all the web of interactions that exists uh, between you know, different species, different climates, even human factors. I mean, it seems like it would be very tough to even begin to sort of tease apart all the various factors. Yeah, it, sh it, it certainly is. And, and, and I think that there's been some really good science that tries to begin addressing this issue. But what some of the kind of headline predictions that you'll see in the media really don't get across is, is often 
how much uncertainty there is really and you'll see that the predictions you know I've just quoted anything from kind of 20% to 70% which I'm sure a lot of people are thinking well you know that's a that's a huge uncertainty bounds and and really we have to be very upfront up with with the fact that there are really huge uncertainties but then then we come into the into the realm of well well how do we actually act based on on these uncertainties do we it comes down to a, an element of risk basically do we assume that well we don't really understand the future so um, we're gonna we're gonna hope that the that the the um, least severe predictions are the ones that are gonna gonna come come true if you like or, or do we do we start planning for the for the more severe predictions and that's not really something that science can tell you and certainly what I'm trying to do through the book and 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 through this chat is communicate that the science can tell us so much but then it's up to society and, and the public to interpret that science hmm. doesn't this make this more difficult than of communicating what we know or think we know about the effects on biodiversity to policymakers and such in terms of planning on what can we do then eventually for preserving species or even for ameliorating climate change. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's kind of what we're trying to engage with, with policymakers and planners. And, and one example of that would be, you know, there's a lot of, been a lot of talk um, in the media and that about, for example, the, the protected areas, you know, the protected areas that we have in, in the U.S. And, and all around the world are really threatened by climate change because this is, this is a, a global phenomenon that kind of doesn't respect the bounds of, of, of a nature preserve. So whereas you could stop hunting within a preserve or stop deforestation within a preserve, you can't really stop climate change. And, and, and some, some planners are, are putting quite a negative spin on this in terms of, well, what, what can we do then if, if it's such a big threat? But certainly an argument that, that I make in the book and, and, and that I try and... Um, articulate is that really what what is important for biodiversity conservation and for nature conservation is is not climate change per se it's not just climate change acting on its own but it's really climate change acting alongside all these other threats that are out there at the moment in terms of deforestation and overfishing and over exploitation of, of, of resources and um, invasive species moving into into areas and 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 and, and uh, uh, out competing um, local wildlife so it's not really I mean nature has and biodiversity has 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 adapted to climate changes in in the past part of natural cycles but what's different now really is that this climate change is happening against a very severe backdrop of biodiversity under threat from many causes and to bring that back to, to sorry from, from biodiversity under threat from many different angles and to bring that back to this issue of protected areas the key thing really is that protected areas you know I'm talking about nature reserves Yellowstone and, and, and these kind of national parks these are areas that give nature the best chance to naturally adapt to climate change so they, they, they remain our our best bet in, in, in my opinion for, for, for managing biodiversity into the future I, I don't think we can really do anything better than increasing the amount of protected areas that there are on the planet, increasing the size of them, and, and in particular connecting areas so that species can actually, and biodiversity can actually naturally respond to climate change, for example, by um, shifting their distributions um, as, as we kind of started this chat from, from that point. I see. So really just making sure that there is an area preserved where the natural sort of cycles can uh, respond to climate change. Right, exactly. I mean, another another issue that that is kind of key to this is is the potential for species to to just naturally adapt to to climate change, be it through changing their behaviour, for example, 
polar bears in the in the Arctic have been observed shifting their feeding patterns to um, say goose eggs because they're having less opportunities to hunt seals or actually the potential for rapid actually genetic adaptation. We also see evidence that, that species in some cases are actually able to evolve very quickly. Um, in, in certain cases, not kind of across the board, but in certain cases actually evolve very, very quickly to, to tolerate different, different um, uh, kind of climates, if, if you like. Um, and and um, I guess a, a key thing here is that if we can, if we can build protected areas that... that um, have genetically diverse populations that have large healthy populations um, these are the kind of populations that are going to be able to actually adapt and, and cope with with climate change so protected areas still are in many ways our best bet yeah. is it sort of a general rule that some species that may be higher on the food chain uh, might be easier to adapt or would they be the ones that are more uh, susceptible since uh, the lower species might their food sources might be gone more quickly yeah, it's 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 really tricky, and, I, and I'm not I'm not certain that we have a a particularly good certainly I, I'm not sure I have a particularly good answer to that right now. Um, there, there are certain traits, there are certain properties that make species more or, or less um, adaptable, particularly from an evolutionary perspective. So, if plants, for example, you know, produce lots of seeds, um, which means that there's a larger kind of pool each time, each generation to select from for, for adaptations that, say, can cope with, with a, a warmer climate or a wetter climate or a drier climate, whatever climate change may bring. So, I think there's a lot of research going on at the moment to try and kind of identify those, those kinds of things. But we, we really just, when we start talking about food webs and interactions between species and ecological communities, that's really where the science in many ways is at at the moment, is trying to understand how communities respond rather than just how individual species respond. How does one get out this more nuanced view in, in a media environment where it really is polarized? <laughs> well, or absolutes in a way. <laughs> yeah, I mean... Um, it's tricky, of course, um, tricky to get a more nuanced message um, in, into a soundbite. Um, uh, but um, uh, I think, you know, best we can do is to try and, to try and package the story as, as succinctly and, and accurately as possible, where we, instead of trying to be seen as trying to, if you like, instigate change or instigate reactions from public um, by, if you like, spreading, I wouldn't, maybe scare stories is a little bit too, too strong a phrase, but really by using the most um, extreme predictions to try and instigate change. I think that what we, what we really need to do is, is to communicate what we do know and, and really what, what the uncertainty is. And, and in many ways, the, the, I, I would think that the, a good argument for making changes, for example, to conserve species better and to build better protected areas and to tackle climate change is, is simply that we don't really know what the future holds. Um, and, and maybe that's as good an argument for making changes and responding to the threat as, as trying to instigate change through more extreme predictions of, of what the future might hold and, and by having those kind of more extreme or, or by focusing on the more extreme predictions um, in some ways we open up the the opportunity of, of being accused of crying wolf is, is one accusation that's been thrown at some of the science community and some of the conservation community um, because we're in effect being seen as, as possibly putting out too strong a message um, that um, is, is trying to instigate change through kind of scare stories rather than being very upfront with what we understand and what we don't understand. Right, and it winds up being a bit of an issue when some of the more extreme elements of that don't come to pass. 
Right, mm-hmm. exactly. And mm-hmm. let me give, give you one, one example of that would be um, the whole debate over, over polar bears. I mean, polar bears are, are really, the, the, in many ways, the poster child of climate change impacts on, on natural systems. And for good reason, you know, a, a lot of listeners will, will know the, the general story about um, as the sea ice is, is melting, there's less opportunity for polar bears to hunt ringed seals, which are their, um, uh, their stable food source, if, if, if you like. Um, so the message that's often seen in the media is simply one of polar bears are going to go extinct because they're losing their opportunity to to hunt their main food source, which really the, the message needs to be much more nuanced than that because what we actually see is that polar bears are adapting their, adapting their behavior. So there's good evidence, as, as I've already mentioned, um, for polar bears predating um, on sea goose eggs, um, for example. So this would be a case where actually the message that's seen in the media of, oh, polar bears are going to go extinct is, is really not the full story. Um, but that's not to say that climate change isn't a threat, because if you think, well, the polar bears are suddenly shifting their um, behavior to, to feed on goose eggs, well, what, what knock-on impact is that likely to have on the geese populations? And what knock-on impact is that then going to have on, on, on the other species that are interconnected to the system? So it becomes really, really very complicated, and we, we can't really make the story black and white. I mean, the book itself goes into a number of different case studies, if you will. I mean, it takes different continents, Madagascar, Costa Rica, the British Isles. In the aggregate, when we look at all these cases, we just sort of get a global sense of how climate change is affecting the world in general. Yeah, well, we, we certainly can. And that's, yeah, certainly what I try and kind of set out in the first few chapters of the book is really how climate change is already impacting species. So, yeah, I, give, I already mentioned the example from, from Madagascar, but uh, another case of a, of a, a frog, the golden toad, that's um, uh, we think gone extinct due to climate change um, in, in Costa Rica. It was endemic to Costa Rica, and it's, it's, it's now extinct. And we think we can trace that back to um, impacts of climate change on, on mist within in the forest. Um, yeah, what we need to do really to, to build up a bigger picture is to actually look across um, not just Madagascar and Costa Rica that I've mentioned, but also when we talk about Indian Ocean, ocean uh, corals, we talk about birds in Europe, birds in North America, for example. Here's, here's one example that birds in North America have been observed shifting their distributions poleward, which is what you'd expect as, as the climate warms, by yeah, on, on, on kind of average across um, uh, a few hundred bird species. Sorry, a few dozen bird species, um, roughly kind of two kilometers a year. Um, so these are really quite significant distribution shifts that we're seeing. But we can't pin it down to a, a particular study is, is, is proving the link with climate change. Really, the, 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 the argument is much stronger if we think kind of strength in numbers. And, and, and the, the scientific term that's often used is the kind of meta-analysis. So there's a number of meta-analyses that have, have been taken on, which, which look across their analyses that look across a whole suite of, of other analyses. So try and pick up a global picture, as, as you mentioned. And that really very strongly comes back we can be very confident that there, there already is a global picture of climate change affecting natural systems. What would be your vision then for trying to bring the picture of biodiversity in, in, uh, to the public? What are the, the main recommendations? The first thing is just to, to, to get out this, 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 this story that really we can be very confident that climate change is already impacting natural systems. We can be less confident moving forward as to exactly what those impacts are going to be and particular prediction for a particular species is is likely to be fairly uncertain but what we can do is get the general picture that 
climate change if, as we fully expect, if climate change continues to accelerate and get worse in effect over the coming decades through the, through the coming century, then we can expect nature to continue responding in um, very increasingly significant ways. And uh, this really isn't, um, you know, we talk about some really cool species. I've talked about amphibians and reptiles in Madagascar and that, but this doesn't just relate to kind of some of these charismatic um, species that we like to see on nature shows and the like. These are actually many of the, the responses that we see are relevant to our daily lives. I mean, biodiversity provides so many services for human society in terms of cleaning the water, providing building materials, cleaning the air, um, providing medicines and all these um, kinds of services that we get from biodiversity. And if, if we don't work um, more to, to um, tackle the climate change issue and to conserve biodiversity in, in, in the coming century, then climate change in combination with all these other factors that I've mentioned, like deforestation, like overfishing, like invasive species, um, then we could well be, be faced over the coming decades with a, a much, much poorer um, level of biodiversity on the planet. Mm. Well, uh, the one other little thing I would like to say about your book is that pictures in it are, are really fabulous, and I think if one really wants to get a sense of biodiversity on the, on the Earth, uh, these are really some great pictures. You see a lot of very nice. Uh, I'm curious, so did you t take all these pictures yourself? No, no, not at all. No, there, there are credits in the back there. Yeah. Uh, they're mostly taken from colleagues of mine who have, uh, I've worked with and who've generously um, contributed those. Uh, well, it, it really is a great book and fabulous. I think a lot of people should take a look at this. The book is called Driven to Extinction, The Impact of Climate Change on Biodiversity. And uh, Dr. Pearson, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you. Uh, if you do have a few seconds, though, we would quickly like to play our game, the Grokatron 5000. I'll give it a go. Okay, it's time to play our game, the Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. And today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, Easy to Adapt or Stuck in a Rut? So for the following five individuals, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if uh, you think they'd be easy to adapt or if they're just stuck in a rut and uh, maybe a little reason why. Uh, Dr. Pearson, ready to play the game? All right. Okay, here we go. Person number one, it's Charlie Sheen. Ooh, I would hope, uh, I would hope that um, he's likely to adapt. He seems very changeable. He's adapting to unemployment yeah. very well. Well, that's true. I think he's finding other sources. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Dr. Pearson, uh, Tiger Woods. Stuck in a rut. Probably uh, some, there should be some golfing analogy here, shouldn't there, in terms of uh, stuck, uh, stuck in a rut. <laughs> ball, is, uh, ball is buried so deep you can't quite get it out. <laughs> right. Wow. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> that was yeah, the one that sprung to mind wasn't, wasn't arable in terms of balls. For me. <laughs> well, yeah, no. Hence my hesitation. <laughs> I didn't mean the double entendre there. Oh, yes, yeah, you well, both yeah. did. Uh, uh, all right, number three, Simon Cowell. Ooh, um, uh, changeable. Again, don't follow his career too, too closely, but it um, uh, seem, seems like he's adapting to many different shows. So. Oh, okay, and then number four, Richard Dawkins. I'm going to say changeable. I'm, I'm sure a lot of people might say stuck in a rut, um, but um, he, he is, I'm a, a huge fan of, of Professor Dawkins, and, and if anyone hasn't read some of his books, then, then they, they very strongly recommend them. So changeable sounds like a more complimentary thing to say, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to say changeable. I'm right there with you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and finally, number five, it's the uh, former Prime Minister of Great Britain, uh, Gordon Brown. Stuck in a rut simply because we haven't heard so much from him recently. <laughs> 
Uh, all right, well, Dr. Pearson, I want to thank you very much for uh, sticking around playing the game and again talking about your book, which is called Driven to Extinction, The Impact of Climate Change on Biodiversity. Thank you very much for your time. Pleasure, thank you. All right, it's our pleasure. Shout out time. All right. All right. Well, great interview uh, with uh, Dr. Richard Pearson. Mm-hmm. I so, wonder. I wonder how zombies would affect uh, biodiversity. Oh, you know how they would. <laughs> it wouldn't be pretty. And everyone else, email us at grokscience at gmail.com. Uh, let us know if you have any show suggestions. Uh, let us know if you think that we're morons. Um, you can also go to grox.net, and there is a handy-dandy blog, and you can leave a couple of comments there. Um, let us know how we're doing. Let us know if you have any show suggestions. And, yeah, basically, we would just love to hear from you. Post whatever you're thinking. Your laundry list, grocery list, mm-hmm. something sciencey, that'd be good too. We're also thinking about starting a video blog, so let us uh, know if you have any suggestions there. That would be good. All right, well, this has been the Grok Science Show. I've been your host, Charles Lee. And I'm Elise Kovic. And we'll be back in two weeks with more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us, email us science at groks.net, website groks.net, www.groks.net. We are on Facebook and Twitter. And make sure you post on the website. Let us know what you're thinking, and we'll respond to all of your comments, good, bad, ugly, or otherwise. Thank you.